Welcome to Fly on the Wall. I'm Alec. And I'm Abby. And today we have Ed Goaz on the podcast for you. But first, let's talk about social media. If you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fly on the Wall Pod. And if you have any questions, concerns, comments, or just want to chat with any of us, please email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Now on to our guest. Ed is the president and CEO of the Terrence Group, which is a political consulting and polling firm. Ed is recognized as one of the top pollsters in the country and also runs the bipartisan battleground poll every year with Democratic pollster Celinda Lake. Ed has also worked in the past with the NRCC, the RNC, and is the chief of staff on the Hill. We were excited to have him this semester as a fellow with us here at GU Politics, and now we're excited to welcome him to Fly on the Wall. Hey, Joe, welcome to Fly on the Wall. We're excited to have you. No, oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, so we want to start off by talking about uh, you're managing the 2008 Republican National <laughs> Convention uh, for John right. McCain. We're going to jump right in. Uh, so you managed all the programming for that convention, which is one of the most successful periods of the McCain campaign. Right. Um, but the weekend before the convention, there was a lot of uncertainty surrounding uh, what would happen because a hurricane came barreling through the Gulf of Mexico. Right. So uh, talk about that a bit and how it affected the programming. Well, I mean, and, and this was something, quite frankly, that John McCain and Senator McCain really pushed, is that uh, there was a question with the hurricane coming in whether or not the levees in, in New Orleans was going to hold. Um, and if you remember, this was right after Katrina, a couple of years after, May the next year after Katrina. Um, and although Katrina hit Mississippi directly, and it was the, the rains afterwards that actually caused the problems in, in New Orleans, uh, this hurricane was coming straight at New Orleans. Um, so it was a question about the levees holding. Um, so what we did um, was, number one, on the very first night, um, we changed our programming. Um, actually, President Bush was supposed to speak that first night. Um, he did not. Uh, we did a taping with the four governors, Republican governors of the Gulf states. It was Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas were all Republican governors, so they did a short little thing. And then we did a uh, basically a fundraising uh, for the victims of the hurricane um, and put some people together rather than on the convention on getting food and things to, uh, uh, to the people hit by the hurricane. And then we sat and waited. Um, we were getting information initially that the, the levees were not going to hold. Um, and it wasn't until 5.30 that next morning, um, after we had canceled the program the night before and done a short show uh, kind of covering those things I just mentioned, uh, we didn't find out until 5.30 the next morning that, in fact, the levees were going to hold and we were going ahead on the convention. If they didn't, um, there are certain legalities that you have to meet in terms of within a certain time frame uh, to nominate the VP, nominate the presidential nom- nominee, um, and to confirm them as the nominee legally had to be done. And so if the levies didn't hold, we were going to meet that evening, bring the delegates in, have them vote on the two positions, and then go home after months and months of ba- basically six months of planning it. Um, the flip side of it was, is once we were going, we then had to cut a good part of the program um, and uh, then had to start writing, rewriting speeches, shortening speeches. Um, uh, we did, I think, two big things that I think were very important is we cut out most of the videos. There was a thing we had done honoring um, a Medal of Honor winner. Um, 
that we did leave into the thing because we had a lot of Medal of Honor winners there at the convention and we wanted to recognize them with the McCain background. Um, uh, and then we had basically kind of three groups or four groups of, of pieces. One was uh, the videos that we had interspersed through the convention. We cut those immediately. We then had the must-speaks, the people that McCain wanted to speak at the convention for him or about issues that were of concern for him. Uh, we kept those in. And that left us with a group of politicians that were speaking um, or uh, uh, people from the outside, just everyday people that came in. And so we made, uh, made a decision uh, that we were going to cut all the political people and keep the everyday people speaking because they had they were people quite frankly that had taken times off their job time off their jobs they had paid to come to the convention um, and we felt they needed to be the ones to kind of tell the story out there um, and one of my favorite stories about now vice president pence as opposed to some of the things you hear about him now good and bad is he was the first one i went to to say, I'm sorry, but we're going to cut you from speaking at the convention. It's important for all these guys to, to kind of do that. And he said, and I explained what we were doing, keeping the everyday people. And his response was, um, you're making the right decision. And by the way, if any of my counterparts give you a hard time, let me know and I will speak to them. And that was kind of my first impression of Pence being kind of an everyday guy that really got it. Um, uh, I think sometimes in recent years, he's not been portrayed that way, but I always have that memory of him just being such a stand-up guy at the convention. Yeah, that's great. So speaking of vice presidents, um, one of the more controversial elements surrounding the convention was the selection of Sarah Palin right. as vice president. Uh, what was the reaction like behind the scenes, and were there any hard feelings among the people who weren't chosen? Uh, no hard feelings, um, you know, uh, the, the, certainly um, uh, Senator Lieberman came and spoke at the convention. Mm -hmm. um, I think he was um, John McCain's first pick. Um, we ran into some problems, quite frankly. Um, uh, we ran into some problems of, you want me to start again? <laughs> no, Should it's okay, yeah. Okay. Um, we, we ran into some uh, problems with Senator Lieberman that you had to be um, registered as a Republican 30 days before the convention to be nominated at the convention for VP. And certainly there were concerns by many that him doing that would then tell long before you wanted to who the VP pick would be. Mm -hmm. um, and now John McCain kind of delayed that decision inside that 30 days that I think thinking that he could force the issue a little bit um, because that's who he really wanted um, and that's where we ended up kind of moving very quickly towards Sarah Palin. Um, she ended up being I thought a very good pick. I think some people in the campaign thought differently um, but uh, she gave a great speech at the convention. She was drawing crowds uh, right after the convention that were thousands and thousands five to ten thousand where McCain was getting one to two thousand I think that caused some consternation among some of the staff uh, on the campaign um, but particularly that night when she spoke at the convention um, uh, things were kind of thrown off a little bit I was told going into it that it was a 20-minute speech and when I finally got her speech it was the one speech along with McCain's that I had no control over um, 
uh, when I was given the thumb drive with her speech on it, it was 4,600 words long. Well, basically, 100 words is a minute uh, when you're giving that kind of speech. And so I was like, this is not a 20-minute speech. This is a 45-minute speech. Yeah. Um, and so I moved um, uh, Rudy Giuliani from... Uh, I, I kept Rudy Giuliani. I took the video of her out, kind of introducing her. Um, uh, I took the uh, speaker who was going to kind of nominate her and put her in the uh, hour before and then told Rudy Giuliani that he had to make his speech 12 minutes long instead of the 20 minutes he planned on. Um, which, of course, Rudy came out and gave a 26-minute speech, um, uh, which we couldn't control once it was out there. But, you know, we had him halfway off the stage when we had her going on the stage. Um, the people that were kind of handling uh, Sarah, um, uh, Sarah Palin, said that, well, why don't you let our, uh, our operator of the, um, uh, of the, vo of the uh, screen with the words uh, on it, uh, let us control it because he's been getting her to give it in 20 minutes. And in fact, the teleprompter. And in fact, um, he had never worked on our teleprompter. So we let him do it, but he was the entire speech. He was taking it two lines up over where she could see it. So that entire speech, as good as she was at it, which is where I think she is certainly a lot brighter than people portray her as being. She gave that entire 45-minute speech, and it did end up being 45 minutes. Um, having to remember the words that were skipped, or the lines that were skipped, and then going right into it. And she never missed a beat uh, the entire time. Um, so I was very impressed. Pretty impressive. Um, so switching gears a little bit, we want to talk about the battleground poll uh, you do with from the lake. Of course, uh, your main job is your pollster. Um, and one poll that you do each year, and that you've done for many years, uh, in addition to your work at the Terrence Group, is the Battleground Poll. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you and Celinda get to know each other, uh, and how did that poll come about originally? Um, Celinda and I um, actually met. Uh, we were both selected. We had not met each other before. We were selected to go and oversee the first uh, free elections in Hungary. And so we had flown over to Budapest. We actually met each other after we were on the ground. And uh, actually kind of took to each other right away. I mean, Selena and I are kind of interesting backgrounds. She grew up in a very Republican family, um, changed parties after the 72 campaign, had worked, worked in the Richard Nixon campaign, or volunteered. She was still in college. Um, I had grown up in a very Democratic family, and the last campaign I had worked in on the Democratic side was George McGovern. And we both switched right after that parties. So um, it's always been a very interesting, she has moved as liberal as I've moved conservative, but a great deal of respect for what we do. I, I'm, I'm a big believer, and I think Solana believes in this also, that you respect people that kind of stand up and actually be a part of the process uh, for the right reasons. Um, so we started doing the battleground. We did it because we saw what was coming with public polling, and that was so misstating how polls are used in campaigns. And one of the most unique things about our battleground poll is we write a separate strategic analysis um, that we can't veto what each other says. So unlike many of the polls out there that they'll kind of water down their analysis between the Democrat and the Republican, 
Um, we don't see each other's analysis till the day before we release it in a press conference hmm. um, uh, so that we at least know a little bit what's being said. And it, and it is interesting. I, very often we see numbers the same way. Um, but it's true for any poll. There's always good news and bad news for both sides of the equation. And so she certainly is going to bring out the good news for Democrats and the bad news for Republicans, and I'll do vice versa. But it really, I think, has given, uh, especially since so many public polls are done, too many public polls are done this day, uh, day and age, um, it gave at least some of the reporters that were covering it an idea of how polls are really used in campaigns, as opposed to just being horse races that predict what the outcome is going to be months out from the campaign. Um, so then, other than releasing the polling to the public, do you do anything different for this, um, other than the internal polls that you do for campaigns? Well, I think a couple of things. One is that, and, and not different than the campaigns, um, one is that we understand very deeply that um, if you ask a cynical question, you get a cynical answer. And so we um, tend to stay away from the type of questions that a lot of the public polls use in order to generate a story uh, that quite frankly sometimes are overstating the cynicism of the voters, quite frankly. Um, uh, the other is that in the horse race part and the, and the key parts of the survey, um, we ask the same questions the same way in the same order. So that when you do get the results, they're, they're com apples to apples comparison to how you've asked it in the past. Um, and that's what you do in a campaign. You ask, you basically go from, um, from broader to, to more specific. Your messaging questions that you ask, you never put in the beginning of the survey. You always put it at the end of the survey. So you're not distorting in any way the basic things that you're looking at, which is what is the political environment? Where do the candidates stand in terms of how they're viewed with, with, by the public? and to some extent where the race is. But looking at where the race is is usually the least important part until late in the campaign um, because you're doing the data to basically talk about here's strategically where we need to go um, as opposed to saying, okay, here's the horse race, go home, you're gonna lose. Uh, before we wrap it up, we wanna talk a little bit about the 2016 election. Uh, so the 2016 election was uh, unique for you uh, uh -huh. after uh, so during the Republican primary, uh, you went on Fox News and made some comments that were critical of then-candidate Trump, mm -hmm. um, which ultimately led to your uh, not working on his campaign during the general. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that and uh, what happened there. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's something you're faced with from time to time. I had gone on uh, Morning with Maria, um, and uh, it was actually before he had wrapped up the nomination, but he's very close to wrapping up the nomination, and she had asked me a question about what I thought of Donald Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I was going to support the nominee of the party, um, but it wasn't to that point yet of, of kind of saying, okay, he's the nominee, now support the nominee, which I did later. Um, but uh, she asked me a question what I thought of Trump, and, and it was one of those times where you say to yourself, do you say what you really believe, or do you sugarcoat it, and kind of get off the air. Um, and I think uh, I probably didn't sugarcoat it enough, and I had made a comment that I thought his, he was a man of limited philosophical compass and questionable moral compass, um, which was how I felt at the time. Um, and uh, 
unfortunately, I think he was listening to the show, as I understood it, and received a phone call uh, that afternoon letting me know that I would not be doing any any uh, work for them or the party that that fall. Now, as it turned out, I ended up working for a super PAC that was supportive of Trump. Um, that uh, if nothing else, we want to make sure the race was close um, so it wouldn't affect the House and the Senate races. And obviously, I have a lot of people that clients that were running for re-election or running for the first time. So mm -hmm. I spent my time focusing on them. Fair enough. Um, so now just to get uh, wrapping up into the lightning round. Okay. Main favorite. So just answer the question with the first like phrase or show that comes to mind. It's supposed to be quick. Um, so how do you balance the consulting and polling sides of your career? Um, they're the same. Uh, if, yeah. if you're doing it for the right reason, you do it the right way. There you go. And what is the, your favorite campaign that you worked on? Um, probably my favorite was John McCain. Um, I was an army brat, um, grew up with my father in the military. I worked in my first campaign when I was 12, uh, when he was in Vietnam and John McCain reminded me a lot of my father. Well, there you go, Ed. Thanks so much. We enjoyed the interview. Uh, thanks for coming on Flying the Wall and for being a fellow here this semester. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We really hope you enjoyed it. This is our second to last episode, so we're really sad this season is almost coming to a close. And as a reminder before we leave, please follow us on social media. We're at Fly on the Wall Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And shoot us an email, flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. Yeah, and we'll see you next week for our very last episode with a fabulous guest, so look out for that.